1: Hello, welcome to the New Books Network. I am your host, Ari Barbalat. I'm honored today to be in dialogue with my guest, Dr. Marsha Pally. Marsha is a professor of multilingual and multicultural studies at New York University. She held the Mercator Guest Professorship at Humboldt University in Berlin, where she is now an annual guest professor. She is also the author of Commonwealth and Covenant. Economics Politics and Theologies of Relationality which was published in 2016 and was nominated for the Grauen- Graumeier Award in Religion selected by- and selected by the United Nations Committee on mm-hmm. Education and Justice to be distributed to educators academics pol- and policymakers throughout the world. I'm grateful that we will be in dialogue today about her most recent book from this Broken Hill I Sing to You, God, Sex, and Politics in the Work of Leonard Cohen, published, by Ox- published in Oxford by Bloomsbury University Press 2021. Marsha, it's an honor to be with you.
0: It's My pleasure, Ari.
1: To begin, please tell us about yourself. Where did you grow up? How did you become inspired to become an academic?
0: I'm always surprised by questions like this because um, regarding From This Broken Hill, um, no one is interested in its author. Everybody's interested in Leonard Cohen. Mm. Um, um, But I I grew up in New York City and, uh, and I became interested in multilingual, multicultural studies and the intersection of language, culture, religion politics because I was already writing cross-culturally. I was a dancer and to support in in modern and uh, trained as well in ballet, of course. And I was writing about dance and cinema to support myself as a dancer. And I was writing not only for North American publications, but for many publications in Europe. And after some years of living part of the time in New York and part of the time in Berlin in writing for European publications, I became increasingly interested in uh, multicultural studies and went back and got my doctorate uh, in that field. And now pursue my research in the intersection of both language and culture, but more prominently in the last 15 years, the intersection of culture and religion and politics.
1: What inspired you to write this book on Leonard Cohen?
0: I listened to Leonard Cohen when I was a girl. And recognized then that unlike the other pop rock, whatever I was listening to at the time, Leonard Cohen was writing songs that I didn't understand and that I knew that I would have to read much more and live much more before I understood these songs, which even then were clearly layered and pulled with deep undertoes of imagery that at the time I didn't know what they referred to and perhaps also wasn't fully aware of the life circumstances and life struggles that he was referring to. But I became an avid listener to try to learn more. In 2017, a colleague of mine um, at Humboldt University asked if I would team teach a class in Leonard Cohen at Humboldt. We discussed this, we decided this would be a, a real contribution to the theology department where I, where I teach at Humboldt. And so I have been working with, his, with Leonard Cohen's texts, poems, lyrics, novels since then. We did teach that class and it was a, a huge hit. The students were over the moon. Uh, and in fact, I will be reprising that course in 2022 and teaching it there again. And after spending time looking even more seriously than I had before at Cohn's work. And in seeing the passion and the enthusiasm and the, and the thrill of the students, I felt that I had to, I had to write a, a book bringing the depth of his ideas uh, to readers.
1: How did you grow personally through your writing process to develop this book? What adversities did you overcome to bring this book to completion?
0: I I learned a lot more about topics that are very dear to me and that I have written about. um, Human relationality, human covenantality with the transcendent, some people call God, with each other in our personal relations, in our political relations. And I learned more about these topics through the portal of poetry, through the portal of Cohen's poetry, rather than through the academic work that I had been doing on those topics in the past. So I also learned something that brought me back to my days as a dancer in choreography, which is how much we... Learn about the world through art, through poem, through lyric, through literature, through performance, and how much that adds to our understanding, even of things we believe we know a great deal about.
1: Although Cohen is a household name to many people, to those who are unfamiliar with Cohen and to those for whom he is not a household name. Can you introduce us to who is, who was Leonard Cohen? Why is he an important musical artist? What contribution did he make to music? What contribution did he make to the Jewish world?
0: There are two parts to that question. One is the biography and one is the world of ideas. From This Broken Hill is not a biography. It has a good deal of biographical material so that the work can be contextualized and explained. But the book and I was primarily interested in the contribution that Leonard Cohen made to the way we understand and think about the world we live in. So for me, who he is is bypassing the biographical details. And there are wonderful biographies of Leonard Cohen out there. Sylvie Simmons' 2012 biography is wonderful. Um, and if, if your listeners are interested, I, I heartily, heartily recommend her book, but I was interested in the contribution that he made to our understanding of the cosmos and his diagnosis, if you will, of both how the cosmos functions, and importantly, what our conduct does to break or hobble the functioning of the cosmos. It's a diagnosis for the impoverishment, war, polarization, abandonment, betrayal that we see around us. How how does that happen? How do we get there? how does the world work? How do things flourish? And what do we as human beings do, frankly, that messes it up? And I found in looking at Leonard Cohen's 60 years of writing that these questions run through all those decades and that he is telling us a great deal about how the world works What we do to interfere with our own and each other's flourishings, the consequences of when we breach the way the world should be working. I think that's his great contribution. And he did so in magisterial poetry, which gets to us cognitively and emotionally.
1: How is your study of Leonard Cohen's music unique among? other academic studies, what do you hope your book contributes to the study and memory of Cohen?
0: There are emerging now academic studies of Cohen, but for a long time, there were mostly journalistic approaches. Even today, there are very few works that illustrate a through line that aim to illustrate a through line through Cone's work. And there's where From This Broken Hill, I hope can make a contribution. In the years that I spent studying his oeuvre, s- several key through lines emerged to me, to me. It wasn't a top-down approach, but rather kind of a grassroots seeping up from the lines of poetry and lyrics that I began to see repeating themes, repeating insights, repeating anger, repeating frustration with himself and the state of humanity. Cohen, by being willing to look at his own flaws and faults, reveals flaws and faults that are found around the globe and that mess up our flourishing. And by revealing his own, he has a great deal to teach us about our times, ourselves. And I hope tracing those key themes through the 60 years of his writing in contrast to looking at um, one song here, one poem here, or... Uh, a collection of works, but tracing a through line, I hope will give people not only a better understanding of Cohen, but a better understanding of what he was trying to get at, which is an understanding of the way the world works.
1: You write as follows. Cohen's questions, frustrations, and anger at God aim not at a final judgment about him. Rather, they emerge from the recognition that there is much humanity, there is much that humanity cannot grasp about God, but that part of the human task is to try to understand what we can so that we may live better with him and with those he loves, other persons. How can Cohen's music and lyrics help those who struggle with religion engage in a constructive relationship with it despite their distance? And is this something different for Jews than non-Jews?
0: Let's take that one at a time. Okay. So just go back and let's do the first question. Sure. What was the, you had three questions there.
1: Sure. Um, Um, How can Cohen's music and lyrics help those who struggle with religion engage in a constructive relationship with it despite their distance? And I had a quotation from the book too.
0: Um, right. No, no, I got that. So um, I don't think, Leonard Cohen is not a preacher. Leonard Cohen, I don't think, was trying to make people comfortable with religion. He appealed to believers and non-believers around the world for more than half a century because I, he was trying to get at the foundations of the way the world works, which he thought was relationally, indeed, covenantally. So let's get into that for a moment, though I know we'll get into greater detail later. He understood from studying many wisdom traditions, the Judaism that he plumbed all his life. He also studied Christianity. He studied Buddhism and became a Buddhist monk he studied sufism literature and other wisdom traditions and from this study he understood the world is foundationally relational we are not completed persons who may opt to enter into relationship rather we become the unique and singular persons whom we are through our relationships and interactions with people close to us and people through our global paths of connectedness. We flourish and the world flourishes through relationship, reciprocal relationship for the sake of the other with the transcendent God and with each other. And if the world flourishes that way by our seeing to and seeing and recognizing both God and other persons, then when we fail to do that insofar as we evade or avoid or ignore or betray or violate that covenantal relational structure of the universe, we come to very bad ends we come to the loss and betrayal and poverty and injustice that we see around us. And I think that's what Cohn was trying to communicate through imagery that comes from the Jewish wisdom tradition, the Christian wisdom tradition, and occasionally other wisdom traditions as well. From This Broken Hill focuses on the Jewish and Christian wisdom traditions in addition to his other literary forms. So that was that question. And then you had a a second in
1: that? The segue was, um, does his music resonate differently with Jews as opposed to non-Jews? Is there a difference in response in interpretation and significance? Mm
0: -hmm. So that I think also has two, two levels. One is the ideational level, and one is the kind of the more sociological level. Um, I, I think there's uh, in some Jewish quarters, affection for Cohen as, uh, you know, local boy makes good, local Jewish boy makes good. Um, there's a, uh, an affectionate warmth there. But the ideational level, I think is is more nuanced and perhaps more important because Cohen has been loved and embraced and interpreted by people from all backgrounds. Art invites, one may say art demands, multiple interpretation. And the, the interpretations are not competitive. They are cumulative and additive. Additive, the more the more intelligent voices interpret Cohen's work, the more we learn about Cohen, but also the more we learn about the world. So his work invites perusal and scrutiny from all traditions and interpreters.
1: What role did Judaism play in Cohen's life? How did he become religious? How does Judaism inspire Cohen's songs?
0: He didn't become religious. He grew up religious. He grew up with in a sort of modern Orthodox family in Montreal, and they were practicing Jews. Um, he uh, maintained his Judaism throughout his life, um, and how to. Um, and, and as he put it, there were, you know, he, he maintained his Jewish practice and his Jewish, his curiosity and his commitment to Judaism, um, uh, as he put it, in a, in, in a half-assed way, um, and at times in his life in a much more serious way. So there was the, in the half-assed years Cohen lit Sabbath candles, even went on tour, he celebrated Jewish holidays, but then there were the years of much greater Jewish engagement where he studied Talmud, prayed daily, donned the ritual phylacteries or tefillin um, as part of his ritual practice. He told Stina Dabrowski in 1997 that he was never looking for a new religion, so quote, I have a very good religion, which is called Judaism. When I began to study with Roshi, um, Cohen's mentor in Buddhism, it wasn't because I wanted a new religion. I was always happy with the religion I was born into and it satisfied all the religious questions. Judaism and plumbing Jewish thought was a part of Cohen's life. But it must be said, so was plumbing Buddhist thought. And his study of the words and teachings of Jesus. So, this is an artist that culled from many sources for his telos of understanding again how the word flourishes and what we do to mess it up. I think this is this question now that I've repeated a few times and no doubt will repeat a few more times dogged him all his life, and motivated a great deal of his his songs and lyrics because he knew that he understood himself as a covenantal and relational person like all of the universe, and understood that he breaks covenant and relationships like as all of us do, and that it leads to great loss and misery and pain for ourselves and f- and what w- what we impose and inflict on each other and he wanted to know why the world was set up that way with the paradox of being made for relationship for covenant and yet being made also to so easily breach those bonds that we need
1: the weak of Cohen's death, November 7th, 2016, was also the week of Hillary Clinton's electoral loss to Donald Trump. Hypothetically speaking, how might Cohen have responded aesthetically to the Donald Trump era?
0: I think he would have understood it the way he understood the world when he wrote Everybody Knows in 1988, for example, which is a template in a way for Cohen's uh, diagnosis of our politics, which he felt emerge from our breach of our bond with the spiritual, with the transcendent, followed by our breaches with each other in our personal lives, which then become our breaches of relationality, and covenantal commitment in our political lives. In that song, everybody knows, he begins with the political. Everybody knows the fight gets fixed, the poor get poor, and the rich get rich. And he goes, slides into the personal, into personal betrayals, and then slides into spiritual meltdown. Mm. And I think that he... Maybe it's worth since this uh, maybe it's worth me um, reading a few lines from absolutely everybody. so this is everybody knows from aya uh, the song collection I'm your man 1988 mm-hmm. it begins with politics everybody knows the war is over everybody knows the good guy's lost everybody knows the fight gets fixed the poor stay poor the rich get rich and then in the later verse, Cohen slithers into personal breach of covenant. Everybody knows you've been discreet, but there were so many people you just had to meet without your clothes, everybody knows. And then the image of the betraying lover shifts to the image of the betrayed God who was abandoned at Calvary, Cohen's Christian imagery, and then is discarded by us daily. He writes, from the bloody cross on top of Calvary to the beach at Malibu, everybody knows it's coming apart. Take one look at this sacred heart before it blows, and everybody knows. The theme of our breaking bond with God, bond with those in our personal lives and those in our political lives, is Cohen's dark trinity, the three bonds that we break. You asked me about Donald Trump and it would seem to me that Donald Trump broke all three bonds and that that is how Leonard Cohen would understand him as someone who did not, did not have a ethical, moral commitment to God, who violated covenant in his personal life, adulterous relationships, consorting with porn stars, paying off, paying them off to keep his relationships, his adulterous and illicit relationships secret, not paying his workers, not paying his suppliers, and onward into his political positions, fanning xenophobia, racism, and funneling money to the already rich through his 2017 tax legislation. That's how Leonard Cohen would have seen the Donald Trump era.
1: One quotation of yours that struck me was the following. You write, in your book on page 146. Cohen was interested in the ontology of the cruel, in the capacities in human nature, and God's design that underpin it. What undergirds undergirds the Holocaust, as with the rest of our self-interested brutality, is the way humanity is made. The will to evil, Yitzher Hara, is a free radical, able to invade any love and circumstance. What do you mean by these words? Can you explain what you were attempting to convey? Page 146.
0: I I use those words because they um, summarize Cohen's, m- much of Cohen's worldview. He was interested in understanding an ontology of the cruel. Why do we do these things to each other? So if we are made as relational persons, if we um, flourish, when we see and see to our relationships with God and with each other, personally and politically, economically, then why do we break them? Who is responsible for this yo-yo that we go through? of forming bonds, commitments, needing relationship, needing love, needing to give love, needing to give care and concern, seeing to others, and then bolting. Fear, seeing to oneself, self-absorption, self-interest, self-protection. What is responsible for this yo-yo between those two? He He was interested in figuring
1: that out
0: that's what those words mean. Does that help?
1: It does. Along similar lines, you also write on page 133, Cohen's anguish at human cruelty was serious, but he also understood the adulation he got for being cruelty's merciless prosecutor, prosecutor of his own and our sins. Feeling guilty makes us feel like the good guys And we exalt the prophet who proffers this. Feeling guilty is the perfect form of exaltation. It lathers Cohen with love, yet requires no commitment. At the end of the revel, audiences leave and leave him alone. Why would Cohen, as you read him, say that guilt is a hypocritical emotion? What would be the alternative to guilt? How does Cohen understand guilt?
0: This is not so much about guilt. This this is about Cohen being on to self-aware of his own breaches of relationship, his own manipulations of relationship, and knowing that they are part of his flaws and faults. The point of the book is not a hagiography of Cohen. What makes Cohen interesting is that he was fully aware of his treatment of women, love them and leave them, bond them and bolt, his inconstancy with God. In fact, his he saw his inconstancy with women is a subset of some sorts of of the problem of our inconstancy to God persons, lovers and others in general. And he was aware that he could also take his confessional stance in his writing, his confessional stance of being the cad, the bad boy who abandons women and confesses this to his audience and the confession becomes a seduction of his audience for more adulation and stardom. So he was aware of his faults and flaws, confess them, and then aware that he was using his confessions for more self-interest confessional as seduction and he was willing to confess that as well so there's a double loop there first you do a bad thing you love him and leave him then you confess it and then you use the confession for further seduction and then you confess that as well what we benefit from is Cohen's insight into himself and other and others and his willingness to expose it, to write about it, and the genius of writing about it in the intricate and shimmering poetry that he used. Michael Ondatya archly noted um, that uh, both Bob Dylan and Leonard Cohen were what Ondatya called public artists who uh, made careers and I'll now I'll quote Ondatya on their ability to be cynical about their evils or pop sainthood while at the same time continuing to build it up, end quote. Cohen was perfectly able to feed his pop sainthood of the confessing cad right back into his writing and milk it for art and stardom.
1: Thank you. What do you mean by the metaphor of the Mobius Strip, which is developed throughout your book. What is a Mobius Strip, and how does it embody covenant?
0: Where Cohen started was was with God and creation and the cosmos. For Cohen, God is the reason there is something rather than nothing. It is the ground and source of existence. There could be nothing at all, but there's something. And the reason there is something is what Cohn called God. It is immaterial, infinite, out of the order of nature and our world that self expresses into creation and creates the world. This is also an idea in um, the Kabbalist, Ein Sof, it's an idea in the German romantic poet Schelling. And what we have as a result of this is that everything in the world partakes something of this creative force in order to exist. Aquinas sent it beautifully by saying that um, God works intimately in all of creation. God is intimate within us in order for us to exist. But what does that mean? That means that we are in intimate relation with the source of existence, but we are radically different from the source of existence. Difference amid relationship, therefore, is the structure of the universe. And it also means that we are different, yet in unavoidable relationship with the transcendent, but also with each other. We are different from all other persons in the world, and yet we are in unavoidable relationship. This is why Cohen thinks that we are a relational, covenantal species living in a relational universe. because. Distinction among particulars, a mid-relationship, unavoidable relationship, is the grammar of the world, of the universe. This means we have to see to those relationships for the flourishing of the planet and each other. So how to tie what I have just said about our relationship with God and with each other to the Möbius Strip, that's an image that I use to explain Cohen's understanding of the universe, that our relationship to God and our relationship to everything else that exists because of God, which means to each other, is that Möbius strip band. It's the image of a bracelet that turns so that the exterior side becomes the interior side, it's a trompe l'oeil, it's, a, it's an image of a um, band where the two surfaces are entwined in each other.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And this is how our relationship with God and each other work our relationship with each other constitutes our relationship with God and our relationship with God sustains us in our relationships with others. They are inseparable. The two covenants, if you will, the covenant with God and the covenant with each other are inseparable and entwined one in the other because of the way Uh, the universe is constructed because of difference amid relation with the transcendent and with everything the transcendent grounds in existence. And that's why, again, importantly, Cohen was so crushed by our breaking relationship because he understood relationship as foundational to the basic grammar of the universe, and yet we break it. And how is that possible if the relationship between us and God and us and each other is foundational? How is it possible we so easily breach these bonds and this this anguish pursued him all his life? And as many Cohen listeners know he was very angry at God at times for making the world as it is making us relational covenantal creatures capable of breaking relationship daily and so much of many of um of Cohen's songs express this anger and frustration and lack of comprehension of God. Why did you set it up this way? In the um, song, Lover, 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 he puts these words in the mouth of God. He said, I put you in this body, you humanity. I meant it as a kind of trial. This is Cohen angry at God for making us for committed relationships and giving us bodies with wandering desires as a kind of trial? What kind of rigged trial is that? What kind of God sets us up that way? And Cohen's frustration and anger with God for what he recognizes are his own faults and flaws also runs through Cohen's work. And I think this is a very important reason why Cohn moved so many people world the world over. This frustration with, I know what I should do. I know what makes us flourish, and yet I don't do it. I do things I don't want to do. That's a universal struggle. And in the nuance and specificity of his poetic image, he gave voice to that struggle that is round the world.
1: If we think of his song, Dance Me to the End of Love, to what degree does this song embody this understanding of relationships?
0: Dance Me at the End of Love embodies a poetic technique that Cohen used to express the Möbius strip that we just spoke of. The entwined bond with the transcendent, and with others. And the poetic technique is that he often writes in a way where the lines can be read as addressing God or a human lover, or that it is God addressing us or a human lover. The lines can be read doubly Reflecting the entwined Möbius strip or double covenant, and that's one of the things going on in "Dance Me to the End of Love." Um, it's an um, example of this double imagery, and I'd like to um, I'd like to explain that or unpack that a little bit. Sure. Let's look at some of the lines of dance me to the end of love dance me through the panic till i'm gathered safely in lift me like an olive branch and be my homeward dove dance me to the end of love who's he talking to here the world word panic may mean sexual insecurity or Spiritual crisis gathered safely in may refer again to sexual intimacy or return to God. Lift me like an olive branch may refer to spiritual uplifting or male sexual arousal. Homeward dove may be the site of sexual intercourse or peace of the soul. This technique of the doubled imagery runs through Cone's work in two ways, and I have a a chapter on this in um, From This Broken Hill, explaining the two poetic techniques. One is what we've just heard, where the lines themselves can be read as a conversation with God or with a lover, a human lover. The other technique many of us are familiar with from the song, Suzanne, which is one of his most well-known, where the relationships are not conflated, but in Syriatum. Suzanne begins with a song about the half-crazy Suzanne, a human woman. And I'm going to po- um, pause here for a minute and get back to you in just a second. The first stanza of Suzanne is about this half crazy woman, Suzanne, this who's you're not sure if you want to give her your love. The second stanza is about a fellow named Jesus who speaks to us drowning men of humanity, but himself is broken because we are so occupied with what we think our wisdom is that we don't hear him. And in, and there we have the inseriatum technique. First, his struggles with a human woman. And in the second stanza are not being able to hear God. In the third stanza of Suzanne, Cohen employs his conflated imagery where the lines read simultaneously of relationship with God and relationship with women or the Möbius strip that we spoke of. In the final verse, Suzanne wears rags as the God-man Jesus did. And she shows you where to look amid the garbage and the flowers amid the refuse strewn inattentively over nature where Jesus also strode. She carries, the human Suzanne, carries a mirror, which is symbol of both human lust as in the famous story of Susanna and the elders, um, but also of salvation as in the mirror of human salvation from the 14th century. The Suzanne of the third stanza is a conflated image, a guide to salvation, but also bodily and erotic. So we have in the song Suzanne, a a compendium of these two poetic techniques. One, speaking to God and speaking to persons in syriatum, And in the final standard stanza, conflating them together.
1: Thank you. How did Cohen conceive of Christianity and its relationship to Judaism? What can be learned from Cohen's relationship with Jesus?
0: I'll start with the comment by philosopher Babette Babich who said that Cohen, I'm pausing just for a minute, to get the precise quote, the philosopher Babbitt Babbage, who said that as a Jew, Cohen reminds us to feel for Christ, not to be Christian necessarily, but to get to the point about Christ. Cohen got the point about Christ to love the other and give for the sake of the other. He got it because he understood the world as covenantal and relational in its very foundation of grammar, as we've discussed, relationship with God and relationship with all that God has created. And because he understood the world that way, he got the point about Jesus as the person who, with fully human temptations and doubts, nonetheless, did not break covenant with God or with human persons, but rather sustained that covenant, that covenant of giving and hospitality. So Jesus was a very important figure for Cohen. As a person, and there is no miracle of the Incarnation, unless Jesus is a person. So as a person who sustained covenant, even as Cohen knew that he could not, not with God and not with others and not with lovers.
1: In what ways did Cohen see Jesus and Moses as being exemplars of hospitality? How did he envision these biblical figures?
0: Okay. So I wanna call up one thing to look, so just give me a moment. Building on what I've just remarked about, about Jesus, Moses and Jesus for Cohen were exemplars of those who do not break covenant. Moses ha- could lose his temper and Moses was fully human and made mistakes. The Hebrew Bible is very clear about that. But on the other hand, Moses had inordinate patience with the Hebrews wandering through the desert, which occupies four out of the five Pentateuchal books. And so Moses sometimes demonstrates greater patience and forbearing and forbearance than God has, as in the golden calf episode, where Moses kind of talks God down from his rage. Jesus, as we've discussed, is, the, is too an image of a man of unparalleled generosity, insight. I'll read a quote from Cohen about Jesus. Any guy, Cohen said, who says, blessed are the poor, blessed are the meek, has got to be a figure of unparalleled generosity and insight and madness. A man who declared himself to stand among the thieves, the prostitutes and the homeless. He was a man of inhuman generosity, a generosity that would overthrow the world if it were embraced. And Cohen added, it's hard not to fall in love with that guy. So we have the figures of Moses and Jesus as figures for Cohen, of what the world could be like if we could sustain covenant with God, with each other, in our personal lives, in our political lives, which we don't do.
1: When you speak of love, when ordinary language speaks of love, are we speaking of love the same way Cohen's lyrics speak of love? Do Cohen's lyrics present a specific philosophy of love that's different than the common understanding?
0: I think Cohen's lyrics illuminate our understanding of love and betrayal. When we think of our own lives and when we think of biblical narratives, We know that our loves are passionate and perhaps the most soaring moments of our own lives and the greatest gestures that human beings make towards each other. And yet they are also the site of treachery and betrayal and lying and violation. This is what's wonderful about the Hebrew Bible narratives because they are so honest about the human condition. And Cohn took this very seriously. Genesis, just to begin, is full of trickery, lying, thieving, selling Abraham, selling his wife to the Pharaoh of Egypt because to save his own skin, siblings cheating each other, rape, and more. Brothers selling their brother Joseph to bandits. The Hebrew Bible is a very important book precisely because it's not an instruction manual for living. You don't copy the behavior described in the Hebrew Bible. It's not not a blueprint in that direct way it's a problem set that you're supposed to work through the complex layered sometimes tortured predicaments and relationships that are described and arrive at a moral code this is true of love relationships as well the hebrew bible and cohen's work are a problem set of soaring passion, devotion, and yet bolting, abandoning, betraying. This brings us back to the genius of Cohen's work in that he was willing to expose his own flaws that are common to many of us and to write about them to better understand what's afoot. In 1997, Cohen said, the Old Testament is really the testament of the victory of experience, history, it's men, dealing with the absolute who have to deal with other men as well. Apologies for the gender exclusive language there. But this is Cohen's appreciation from the problem set that the Hebrew Bible gives us And his own work repeats that, reprises that in his willingness to lay it all out there.
1: You devote some attention to Cohen's speech at the Jewish Library in Montreal in 1964 entitled Loneliness and History. What did he talk about in this speech? Why is it significant? Why is it significant? What does it reveal about him?
0: In 1964, Cohen was still a young man, was a young man of 30. Um, And he gave a speech at the Montreal Jewish Library, very critical of the Montreal Jewish community in which he grew up and of his his teacher, the poet A.M. Klein, who had emigrated to Canada poor and lacking funds, stopped writing poetry, and became a speechwriter for Samuel Bromfman, owner of the Seagram's distillery. He fell into a depression and attempted suicide. Cohen's understanding of this was a young man's anger, which Cohen later regretted. And Cohen lambasted a. M. Klein in this 1964 speech for having betrayed God, for having become a speechwriter and abandoned his own poetry, for becoming a community functionary rather than a poet. Cohen wrote that Klein became too much a theorist of the Jewish party line, he became their clown. He spoke to men who despised the activity poetry that he loved the most. He raised money and now we have his silence. Ah. Cohen was angry at Klein for betraying being a, a poet and revealing the truths of the cosmos and thought also that this was a symptom of what was going wrong in the Jewish community Overall, And I want to read another uh, quote from this, um, from this speech. We, meaning Jews, have lost our genius for the vertical, that is our relationship with the divine. Jewish novelists are sociologists, horizontalists, and the residue of energy left from that great vertical seizure we had 4,000 years ago at Sinai that we turn towards ourselves. This is the confession without which we cannot begin to raise our eyes, the absence of God in our midst." End quote. Cohen was complaining that we have turned our, the Sinaitic seizure, the seizure and beginning of covenant with God at Sinai into the imminence of horizontality an occupation with the here and now. And that's what he was angry at A.M. Klein for doing, an occupation with the here and now, rather than struggling with our foundational covenants. And though he later understood that this was the anger of a young man and later regretted that anger, you can see where for Cohen, the Holy Grail is grappling with our foundational covenants and with our breach of those covenants.
1: Why did Irving Leighton, who was a mentor to Cohen, refer to Cohen as a narcissist who hates himself?
0: Irving Layton is also a poet and a very shrewd man, and it's a wonderful line, one of my favorite, a narcissist who hates himself. We are the beneficiaries of Cohen's uh, narcissism and self hate. Cohen was narcissistically concerned with his own passions, passions for God, passions for women, passions for social justice, and his own breach of those three passions. He was self-absorbed in his own paradoxes. And that's what Leighton meant by he's a narcissist who hates himself. And Cohen tried to understand those uh, paradoxes in himself all his life and thereby illuminated much of the human condition.
1: Aubrey Glazer has written a book on Cohen, and he refers to Cohen as a mystic for the post-secular age. Do you agree or disagree? How would you respond to that assessment of Cohen?
0: Aubrey's book, Tangle of Matter and Ghost, is a wonderful study of Cohen's work, complementary to my own and I'm a great admirer of Aubrey Glazer, I think Cohen is a mystic for the post-secular age. And I think that's Glazer's entree into the work of Cohen. That's Glazer's lens. I would say that from my lens, Cohen is a prophet and priest of covenant for the post-secular age. Prophet and priest have two different roles. The prophet is the voice of God angry at people for failing covenant. And Cohen, at times in his life, very frankly spoke about taking up the prophetic mantle and expressing God's disappointment that we break covenant with him and with each other. The priest's role is the voice of the people, representing the people and the people's way of living, struggling with life on earth, with war and poverty or food shortages, insufficient rain, and bringing the human complaint to God. It's the other side of the coin of the prophetic voice, the priestly voice. And I think here Cohen also says quite explicitly in interviews that he also took on the priestly role, that he learned that he was not only Leonard Cohen, but a Kohen, a priest in the Jewish tradition and that he took that quite seriously, bringing humanity's frustration, indeed his own frustrations to God. Why did you make the world this way? Why did you make it that we flourish through relationship and yet we break it and so cause the pain of poverty and war and betrayal and abandonment? Why God did you make the world this way? So some of Cohen's writing is the prophetic voice complaining, charging humanity with betrayal of covenant. And sometimes it's the priestly voice asking God why the world is created as it is.
1: Is there a parallel between Cohen's understanding of God and his views on women?
0: yes as i said his a little while ago to one of your other wonderful questions cohen understood his relationship with women as a subset of the paradox of unsustainable covenant he could no more sustain covenant with god and find peace with his with himself than he could sustain Covenant and bond with the women he loved. Now the paradox there is: it's not that he failed covenant or commitment with women he didn't know very well or didn't he, women he didn't care about. He couldn't sustain it with women he passionately loved. And for Cohen, this is part of the same problem. We are made for covenantal commitment to see to the other of the other in a reciprocal relationship, and we blow it. And they're part of the same human paradox.
1: As we bring this interview to a close, what are you working on next? Uh, Can you share with us what you're working on as your new and subsequent project?
0: I can, but I would like to say a word or two about Cohen at the end of his life, both about women and God, which builds on your previous question, and I think listeners need to hear that to round out the picture. The end of his life, Cohen came to no tidy resolution to this paradox of being made for relationship, for covenant, and yet unable to sustain it. But he came to two under, understandings, a kind of quasi, not quite at peace-ness with both his relationship to God and to women. In his 70s, he he said that until I was 65, I saw all kinds of miracles, but I never saw the woman standing there. Perhaps through his relationship with Anjani Thomas when he was in his 70s, and perhaps through a life of reflection on his personal relationships, he did come to see the woman standing there, not the dazzling icon, not woman as a portal to spiritual relationship with God, which Cohen had thought all his life, and no real relationship can come of that. If you see women as a portal to your, the man's own spiritual development, there's no woman there. And in, uh, in this period we get something in Cohen's writing that we don't see before, which is the female subject period when he's working with Anjani Thomas. Yes. And I'm going to quote a, strong, a, a few lines from A Street. Listen who's speaking. You left me with the dishes and the baby in the bath. You're tight with the malicious you wear their camouflage. I guess that makes us equal, but I want to march with you. The party's over, but I've landed on my feet. We have uniquely in Cohen's work of the female subject and she has landed on her feet when the relationship is over when the guy leaves her with the dishes and the baby and ran off to war. In that same song, she appreciates the relationship for what it was and she is able to move on. Let's drink to when it's over and let's drink to when we meet. Here we finally have the woman herself intact. The other quasi-resolution, or acceptance is a better word, at the end of Cohen's life with his relationship with God. He didn't give God a sentimental pass at the age of 82. He was still angry with God for unsustained covenant, for making us unable to sustain the very relationships we need, but he also came to an acceptance that this is the world that god has created and we cannot understand it but that there is this is an inscrutable god perhaps but that there are no other gods the first and second commandments and that the paradox of unsustained covenant has to be lived with because there is no other human living And that the task of humanity in this paradox of unsustained covenant is that we keep trying. I'll just start again. In the song that you mentioned before, Dance Me to the End of Love, Cohen writes, Raise a tent of shelter, though every thread is torn. This is the human task in the paradox of unsustained covenant, raise the promise of shelter, though the tent threads are torn and may offer no protection. They can't be counted on, and yet there is no avoiding the effort to make shelter for ourselves and others. In his last song collection, You Want It Darker, and in the title song, of that collection. He has both his anger at God and his recognition of a paradox that we don't understand, but is the way of the world. In the refrain of You Want It Darker, Cohen writes, magnified, sanctified, be thy holy name, vilified, crucified, in the human frame, a million candles burning for the help that never came. You want it darker. You, God, want it darker. We kill the flame. The first line, magnified, sanctified, be thy holy name, is from the prayer that uh, in Judaism is said for the dead, the Kaddish, which Cohen used for the first time three weeks before he died. He is being sarcastic in this refrain, this is the God we magnify and sanctify, a God who allows vilification and crucifixion and whose help never comes. Why lay our souls in his hands? That's Cohen's ire and frustration with God's creation. But the second part of the refrain puts an end to all of this taunting. And Cohen ends with hineni, the Hebrew word hineni, I am present. I am here for you, God. This is Cohn's pledge to God. I don't understand the way the universe is created, but I am here for you, present, Hineni. Hineni is also Abraham's response to God at the Akedah, the binding of Isaac, when he is asked to sacrifice his son Isaac. Abraham answers God with Hineni, I am here. But it is also Abraham's response to Isaac himself and to the angel who stops the sacrifice that wasn't to be. Abraham is present and open to the person of Isaac as to the angelic and the divine. Cohen, in invoking this Abrahamic Hineni a sense to the interlocking covenants with God and person. Covenant is at once with God and persons together. This is God's creation and there are no other gods. The, the, the song ends with Hineni after 80 years of ricocheting between covenant and bolting, commitment and inconstancy. Cohen recognizes that this inscrutable God is the God he has been searching for his life and resisting and refusing all his life and that God is now taking him out of it.
1: The final question I would ask as we bring this question to a close is, this, this interview, the final question I will ask as we bring this interview to a close is what are you working on next as your new subsequent project?
0: Something that a a new book is my next project that is politically important but sadly brings out much less of the the poet in me that... The, in comparison to the Leonard Cohen book, a number of people have commented that my voice um, is different in From the Broken Hill than it is um, in more uh, uh, cultural studies books that I've written, which tend to have more of an academic voice. And in this book, From the Broken Hill, there's a more poetic voice in the next uh, book there will be less of that poetic voice because I have just completed a short book whose title explains its purpose. And the title is White Evangelicals and Right-Wing Populism, How Did We Get Here? And the purpose of the book is to uh, attempt to answer the question Uh, how from relatively progressive beginnings in the United States in the 18th and 19th centuries have white evangelicals come to embrace, in large numbers, the populist right.
1: Hmm. Sounds like a fascinating topic and a very relevant one. I really wish you the best of luck as that book goes through its process to be published. And I also would like to close by expressing my utmost gratitude to you for the generosity of your attention, for your erudite book, and for the wisdom you shared with us in your answers to the questions asked during this dialogue. Yeah.
0: Thank you for your very insightful questions and for the opportunity for this interview. Thank you very much, Ari.
1: Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you.